Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So uh, this morning, we gather as a church, and we literally find ourselves smack in the middle of a cosmic war. You, uh, as we sit here this morning, the, the war that we uh, are find ourselves in the middle of, it's not um, new. It's been going on for a couple thousand years, probably been going on longer than that. And I just want to be clear, it's not the war between conservatives and liberals. It's not the war between Democrats and Republicans. It's not the war between the United States and other nations. The war that we find ourselves smacked in the middle of is this. It's a war between the community of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. Let me say it to you a different way. We were at one time slaves, and then there was a king who stepped down out of heaven into history, opened a firing shot, won the freedom of his people, and ever since then, the enemy that he took us from has been on rapid assault, trying to assault the community of Christ. And let me tell you why. The devil hates Jesus. And because he hates Jesus, he hates the church. So with that as a preface, the topic we're going to be talking about this morning is obviously sexual immorality. The, in the framing of a cosmic war, it's, um, it's not hard to miss the fact that that, that usually comes to a, a, a breakwaters in the topic of sexuality or our sexual ethic. Um, but the thing, that, uh, the, the thing that's sort of, if you, um, if you noodle on it for a little bit, is just how much of a swirl this topic is. All you have to do is watch the news for, you know, not even 24 hours, 12 hours, read the front news of the, the paper, and what you see, it's, if you look at it through spiritual eyes, I mean, it is literally like bodies dropping everywhere. There's, you know, um, not to be political about it, but there's the Kavanaugh hearing, then there's Bill Cosby, then there's, it, there's just, you just see this topic um, at hand all the time. And so this morning, what we're going to do, uh, and on the front end of it, it's going to be, um, slow and pretty direct, but what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how does the topic or how does our belonging to Christ affect the way we view sexuality? All right, let me say that to you again. How does the fact that we as the church belong to Christ affect the way we view sexuality? And uh, as one more caveat before I get into it, you know, Paul said two things as he was writing this letter. The first one he said is, I do not write this to shame you. It's the first one. None of this topic is to shame you this morning. The second thing he said is, I write these things to secure from you an undivided devotion to Christ. The sole objective of this topic is to win from you 
secure from you an undivided devotion to Christ. Okay? All right. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. Courtney already read it. If you don't have a Bible at the top of your sermon guide, there's uh, the scripture listed for you. But the first thing we're going to talk about in, uh, in answering how should our belonging to Christ affect the way we view sexuality is first we've got to look at how does it affect our relationship with the Lord. And to do that, what we're going to need to do is define what sexual intent is and what sexual immorality is. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more over the next couple of weeks, but uh, God's design for sex is this. If you flip to Ephesians 5, you'll see it. But sex is a metaphor or a picture of the intimacy between Christ and the church. That's why it's so important to him. So let me say it to you another way. Um, It's not just that uh, sex is about intimacy, but it's also about the exclusivity between Christ and the church. He's never taken to himself another bride. There's not another means of coming to him. And the church has never had another groom. There's not another person that we're being prepared for. But sex is a metaphor of the relationship and the exclusivity between Jesus Christ and his church. So you can see why it would be dead in the middle of what the enemy would want to do, why he would want to attack it. So how does the Bible define a sexual ethic? It defines it this way. It says, because it is a metaphor of Christ and the church, sex belongs within the bounds of the marriage between one man and one woman, period, or abstinence. The reason it belongs inside the bounds of marriage is again because it's about the covenant between Christ and the church. The other reason why the other response is abstinence is just this. Abstinence, waiting on a groom or waiting on a bride, is literally a picture of Christ waiting for his church. It's a picture of the church waiting for her groom. So the reason abstinence is the other form outside of marriage is because it pictures the waiting of the church right now. Okay, So I set that up as parameters for you. Here's what that means. Anything outside of that definition is sexual immorality. It's tough. Um, I'll just list that off for you. Pornography, sexual immorality. Casual sex, sexual immorality. Um, Premarital sex, you're you're engaged in a relationship, but uh, you're not yet married, sexual immorality. I'll take it a little bit further. Um, The use of your body to manipulate someone else sexual immorality. Anything viewed towards um, using sex as a way to gratify yourself or to get from someone else what you're looking for them is outside the bounds of what the Bible describes. Okay, so why is this such a big deal and how does it affect our relationship with Christ? The first way is uh, if you just flip with me to verse 12, you'll notice that after Paul says, uh, he's taken up this topic from the Corinthians where they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what's permissible for them. And what they're doing is, um, within the culture of ancient Greece, uh, sexual immorality was not like a new problem that confronted the church. It was already part of the, the Greek culture. Basically, they viewed sex as just an appetite of the body. And so as long as you weren't disruptive in satisfying it, you were, you were on good grounds. And so as the, as the church began coming to Christ what they started doing is looking in the gospel for reasons to retain the culture they were already coming out of. Does that make sense? So it's not like they came to Christ and then suddenly they picked a different, you know, they, they found themselves back in rebellion. It was a rebellion they had already come out of that was part of the culture that was surrounding them, that was part of the, let me just say, the family of origin that they came up out of. 
And they were looking in the gospel for whether or not they could retain that culture or whether they needed to move on from it. Does that make sense? So Paul steps to it and says, listen, I hear your question about permissibility, but let me tell you this. The real question you need to ask is what's helpful. And then he goes on further to say, the reason this is such a big deal is that if you pursue the gratification of lust, your passions, the the things of your flesh, and you do that in a way that's in unconstrained behavior, here's what will happen. You'll become addicted. Period. You will become addicted. And the consequence of that is you will no longer be free to choose your own behavior. That means you'll no longer be free to respond to Christ in the way that he set you free to respond to him. Y'all hear me on that? The, pr- the first issue is a, pra- is a pragmatic one. If you pursue sexual immorality, the reason it's a really big deal is because you, will, you run the risk of ending up addicted to your lusts and your passions. The second topic, uh, if you flip down to verse 13 to 14, and this one is, um, is sweet when you think about it. Uh, your body, let me just read it to you, 13 and 14. Go to the second half of 13. It says, the body is, meant, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Your body, your physical person, the whole person of who you are is the context for your relationship with Christ. You know, we tend to think about heaven as a place that, a better place than this one, that after we die, our souls go there and finally find peace. But here's the deal. The very, when, when Genesis 1 and 2 described the making of you, you know the first thing the Lord made was a body? He made a body and then he breathed into it. And then our hope is that when Christ comes back, we'll be given new bodies. We don't anticipate a hope that's separated from our body. We, we believe we're gonna put on better bodies in the one we have. The other thing that's sweet is when Jesus Christ came, do you know how he stepped into the world? In a body. And today he sits on the throne of heaven. I love that uh, Tim Rice said this during the vision banquet, but Jesus is committed to humanity. Today he's sitting on the throne of heaven in a body. And when he comes back, he's coming back in a body. The thing I'm wanting y'all to see in that is that your body is central to your relationship with Christ. And that's not because you've made it central to him. It's because he's chosen to make it central. And the reason is it's in your body that your faith becomes tangible and visible. It's in your body that God's glorified. Literally creation sees the worth and the glory of Christ in your body. All right. So it's, uh, it, you run the risk of losing your freedom. It's also um, the context for your relationship with Christ. But these next two, if you look at uh, verse 15 and 19, they're, um, they're, they're a little hard, but we're going to talk about them. Uh, when it says in verse 15 that, shall I take a member of Christ and join it to a prostitute? Um, you have to, you have to like get into the, the Greek text just a little bit. But when it says member, it's not talking about like, member of a country club or like my zoo membership. It means um, because you are united with Christ by faith, you are literally an arm of Christ or an organ of Christ. You are like part of Christ. And then when it says to take Christ, the word that's being used there is literally to sever. It's like to take a saw and sever off a member of Christ. What the enemy wants you to do is be hostile towards Jesus. Y'all see that? And then the next thing it says, it says that, um, you know, if you were 
walking around Corinth, uh, there were temples scattered everywhere. All of these temples had a God that was set up inside them, and that God was living, literally living inside the temple. That's the way they understood it. And what would happen is if an enemy from another city would come in, what they would do is conquer the city, and then the first thing they would do is they would go over and they would desecrate the temple. They would tear the temple down by way of showing that my God's better than your God. See, because your body is so important, and because the Trinity decided to dwell with you so intimately, the Holy Spirit literally lives inside you, lives inside your body. And so when the enemy uh, tempts you or drags you in to participation in what's rebellion against Christ, it's desecrating the temple. Does that make sense? Okay, so the third thing I want you to see in in those two together is that, um, you know, you could call it an issue because it's fraternizing with the enemy. Say it to you a different way, Or, or again. It's an issue because whether you realize it or not, it's participation in what the enemy is doing. All right. Finally, and this is the one that's most important, and it's the one that uh, all the rest of them get their weight from. And it's the end of verse 19 and verse 20. It says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The reason your body matters and the reason your relationship with Christ matters, the reason your relationship with the enemy matters, the reason your relationship with the temple of God matters is because you don't belong to yourself. The sweetest news you have ever heard is the fact that Christ bought you to belong to him. But the consequence of that is you belong to him. See, Jesus has expectations It's right for him to have expectations of your loyalty and allegiance to him. And so imagine um, just a servant who belongs to a really great master, or in this case, a king and his generals or his lieutenants or his army or just his servants fraternizing with the enemy. See, it's most, the, the biggest issue, the reason sexual immorality or sexual ethic is such an important topic in the church is this. There are consequences horizontally for this, but your primary, uh, the primary way to view this is it's about your relationship with Christ. Let me say that to you again. Sexual immorality is such a big deal because it is about your body and your body is the context for your relationship with Christ. Okay. So if I... Uh, we're 13 minutes in. If I walked off the stage right now, y'all are probably sufficiently depressed. I am. I have pretty bad news. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to walk through that is uh, I, I wrestle with this. Is like, hey, should I, should, I, should I winnow this down? Should I summarize? And it's like, no. Paul goes on for nine verses about a long list of issues. And I didn't want to keep that from you guys. This is a really important topic and there's a, it is a very, it's a multifaceted uh, consequence that comes from this. Okay. So we just talked about the fact that um, Christ owns you. It says that you were bought with a price. You were not your own. And here's a sweet thing for y'all to know. So in, when Paul's writing this letter in Greek culture, uh, when a master would buy a servant, the, the part that, that we still understand about that is that the servant 
owns uh, or, or should expect the allegiance of the servant. Does that make sense? The master has a right to expect that the servant will do what he says. The part that's foreign to us that was true when Paul wrote this is that when a master bought a servant, there was also an expectation on the master. And the expectation that was placed on the master was that he would utterly care for the servant. He was now responsible for him. In a sense, it was like, y'all just saw my son running around up here. I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for Caleb. He has his own will. He has his own thing. But Jen and I, at the end of the day, we're responsible for his care, his well-being, his decisions, his, all of those things. So the hard news this morning is that you belong to Christ. But the sweet news is, is that you belong to a master who, when he bought you for himself, provided the most incredible set of resources for you to live in the context of. So what I want to do is from the text, walk through those this morning. The first uh, resource that the Lord gave you, flip to verse 20. It says, for you were bought with a price. And then you go on later and it says that the price you were bought with was the blood of Christ. What that means is that uh, when Jesus stepped down into human history, he chose to put on a human body and chose to live a perfect human life. And the reason he did that was this. So that if you ever ran into the use of pornography or uh, you ran into casual sex or you ran into premarital sex or you, you violated any, of, any bit of what was expected of you, you know the perfect righteousness of Christ would be made available to you. You are righteous today, not because you haven't failed, but because Christ in the past has already lived a completely perfect human life. That's fact one. The second is our sin comes with consequences. And if we're going to serve Christ, if we're going to be in right relationship with him, that has to be dealt with, right? We can't be uh, loving and profitable and intimate servants of Christ and also be objects of his wrath. You hear me? So what Christ did is when he came as a human, he literally picked up your sin, put it on his shoulder, went to the cross and bled. When Jesus was being smashed on the cross, it was your sin that was being smashed on the cross. Today, uh, you are not in double jeopardy today. Y'all know that term? It's like uh, in in the American legal system, it's um, if you've been tried for something once and it's been settled, you can't come back and be tried for it again. It, It flows out of the justice of God is where that comes from. Here's the thing. The Trinity already decided to put all the consequences of your sin on Jesus in the past. Christ would have died for nothing if if the consequences of your sin was going to be revisited on you. Let me just drive that home for you. I know for me, when I think about, um, I'm I'm, I'm a little abstract. So when I think about what Christ did on the cross, it's easy for me to think about, yeah, yeah, he died for sin in general. Or maybe in some weird place in my brain, there's a day coming when Christ might die for my sin. You know, like my sin's going to be wiped away because of what Christ did. But listen, if you have fallen into sexual immorality, if you've looked at pornography, if you have uh, had casual sex, if you've had premarital sex, It was that action that Christ literally picked up 2,000 years ago and put on his shoulder. It's not an abstract thing. It is your particular sin that has already been dealt with. 
in the past. So the first resource that Christ gives us is uh, the absolute comfort of forgiveness. If you want forgiveness, for, if you're here this morning and any of what we talked about in the first 15 minutes was hard and you want forgiveness for it, it's already yours. It's already done. If you just trust what I just said, that means you literally trust that Christ did what he did for your behalf. It's done. The matter's settled. You're free. And that frees you up to be in relationship with Christ. But then the second thing he provides is he doesn't just set us free and then expect us to limp along in our relationship with him. You know how we were just saying that your body is the context for your relationship with Christ. Well, the other thing it is, is your body is also the location for the problem, right? It's in your flesh that lust and uh, passion and all of those things well up in you. And if you're going to serve Christ in an intimate, loving, privileged way, do you know what that means? That means you need a new body. It does. You won't spend eternity limping along in this broken, sinful, uh, well, limping body. When Christ comes back, what he's going to do is he is literally going to bring with him a new creation. He's going to come back in a body that he's already put on that death can't conquer. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to give you an absolutely perfect body that is made and matched for that new creation and that death has no hold over. So the the reason the resurrection of Christ affects your view of sexual immorality is this. He's going to set your body free to live and serve and obey him well for eternity. All right. So you're free in the past. Your future is also absolutely certain. You you won't deal. I'm, I'm just you will not deal with this forever. You know when Paul says, um, man, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do, I don't want to do. You know, y'all, y'all familiar with that? He's, he's lamenting this like, there's a, there's a man in me that wants to serve Christ, and there's a man in me that doesn't want to serve Christ. You know? When Jesus Christ comes back, you are facing an eternity where that will no longer be true. You will only want to serve Christ the other man will be completely gone. But here's the third thing. So you say, great, Kevin. I, I'm, my sin is dealt with in the past. I'm going to get a new body in the future, but I'm tired of living in this today. Maybe I've become addicted to something or the pressure of the culture around me. I might not even be addicted, but the, but the movement of our culture is that I, I have to do these things. What about my present? Has Jesus abandoned me today? And here's the answer. I want you to flip back down to verse 19. You know, right in the middle of when he's talking about um, desecrating the temple, do you know the sweet news inside that is it says, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. The third resource that Jesus is giving. You know, when he, um, when he was about to ascend and go back to heaven, there's this weird, awkward moment in the scriptures where he says, if I, if I, it's better for you if I leave. Do I remember that? And you're like, how, how could that be good for Jesus to leave his church? And then he says, because when I go, I'll send to you another helper. I'm not going to abandon you, but I'm going to send you a second helper to be with you. See, the, 
the Holy Spirit is here within you today among us as a church to help you today. And the two ways that he helps you are this. Do you know the Holy Spirit advocates for you? He does. It says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings that are too deep for words. So when you, when you are wrestling with uh, addiction or you're wrestling, whatever it is, that deep pit in your stomach, do you know that the Holy Spirit is already in that place interceding for you? He's already praying for you. And then the second thing that he's doing, you know, every time that, uh, that, that someone comes, like dry bones come to life or um, someone's dead and then they come back to life, do you know the agency that does that? It's the Holy Spirit. He's living in you today to resurrect your heart. What he's doing is he's, he is, he is uh, he's convicting you of sin. But the other thing he's doing is creating faith in your heart. All that stuff we just talked about, Christ's death on your behalf, Christ's life on your behalf, the righteousness that's yours, the absence of your consequences that's yours. You come to believe that because the Holy Spirit is at work among you. All right. Uh, you know, this morning, if you're sitting there and you're feeling, um, I'll just use the word conviction. If there's like a pit in your stomach, what's going to happen right now is the liar is going to tempt you to say you've ran away from Christ, you're on your own, and he's going to invite you into guilt and shame. That doesn't mean that the conviction in, your, in the pit of your stomach is not real. The conviction in the pit of your stomach is the presence of the Holy Spirit living in you. Listen, people who are sinners, who are outside of Christ, their sin doesn't bother them. If you're here this morning and your sin bothers you, that is evidence that you are in Christ. And you know what you can do? You can tell the liar to pack his bags. You can. You tell him to get to stepping because, listen, you already belong to Jesus. He bought you. He doesn't, the, the, the enemy doesn't have any say over you. You don't even have any say over you. The only person who has any say over you is the king of heaven who's coming back to get his bride. And I'm hoping it's tomorrow. I'm hoping it's not any, very much longer. All right, so the three resources that Christ gave you are this, the absolute assurance of pardon. There's nothing that you have done or will do that is outside the bounds of what can be forgiven by Christ. The second thing is your body is uh, the context for your relationship. And so Jesus is already in his resurrection, one for you, the guarantee of a new body. A day is coming where all this junk that you deal with whether it's pressure from the culture or pressure from your own uh, in, in, internal body, it's going to be over. You're going to face an eternity where all that's gone. And then the third thing is right now, the Holy Spirit is living in you and among you, working with you to wed you to Jesus. You're not on your own. Remember where we started. This is a fight. It's a war. Jesus doesn't expect that you're just like, in the kitchen on your own, and that this isn't hostility towards you. The Holy Spirit is at work among you to help you and to wed you to Jesus. So what should we do? You know, at this point in, uh, in any sermon, you always wonder, are you face the temptation to devolve into, y'all know what moralism is? Moralism is y'all better clean your act up because Jesus is coming back. 
I'm not going to say that to you this morning because that's really bad news. You know what that does is that severs you from Christ and that puts you back on your own two feet and that's exactly what started the problem. But I don't want to shy away from the imperative because there is one in the scriptures and in fact, there's two. And it's really clear if you flip to uh, verse 18, y'all just go there with me. You there? Flee from sexual immorality. Paul didn't just give a theological treatise on this topic and then walk away. He said, get running. Run as fast as you can from this problem. And the reason is, is because it is holy hell happening. He didn't say like, hey, um, just be careful. He didn't say uh, be cautious or just try to go. He said, run because you're at risk. Run. But the other sweet thing that he said is, uh, we don't see it in our text, but you know, one of the things I love about Greek is I think they were rednecks. Uh, Greek's got a y'all. And he uses it here. I mean, I don't know that they're rednecks, but the the Greek text is. It says, y'all flee. Doesn't say you flee. What Paul's saying there is this is such a dogfight, y'all that it requires the community of Christ to run from this topic. Not just not talk about the topic, I mean run from sexual immorality. What that means is two things. It means that uh, if you're in here this morning and you're, and you're sitting here and you're like, hey, I'm, I'm great, this isn't an issue for me. One, I'll tell you, that's probably not true. But the second is um, you are still part of this because sexual immorality affects you because it affects the body of Christ. You have to get in this fight. And the second thing that I want you to hear is that if you're here this morning and that you are dealing with this, you are in addiction or you're dealing with sexual immorality, you're not going to climb out of it yourself. The resource that Jesus has given you is his body, is his community. You need help to flee. So I want to talk about what that looks like in really practical sense this morning. You know, um, One of the places, well, it's not one of the places, it is the place. The place that sexual immorality loves to dwell is darkness. You know, if uh, if you've ever owned a home and it's an old home, you might have like a a water leak, a little drip behind a wall. And if you open up that wall, there's mold growing everywhere. And it's like nasty and dank and dark. But one of the things that you have to do with deal with the mold is you just have to open it up. You just have to tear the wall down You have to let the light hit it and you got to let the fresh air hit it. That's the first thing that you have to do is you just have to get it out into the open. Listen, fleeing sexual immorality, it it does mean this. Don't mess around with it. I don't want to like move on to some other steps and miss that point. You know, the Corinthians started at at, uh, what's permissible for me. If you're at the, on this topic, if you are exploring is anything to do with sex, outside the bounds of my marriage, permissible, run the other direction. Run. Do you hear me? Okay. But then the second thing you need to do is that if, if you are, if you've dealt with this or if you're stuck in this, confess it. I mean, this morning, I'm literally begging you to confess it. Find a mature believer, someone who's in Christ. And what I mean by confess it is, Don't write it in your journal to Jesus. Do do that. You need to deal with him on it. 
but go find someone who's in Christ, who you trust, and tell them the facts about it. I'm serious, y'all. Paul said, run. And I am begging you this morning to confess this to someone near you. The second thing is, uh, what's, if you find yourself being on the other end of this, being hurt by this, I am begging you to forgive the other person. Um, Jesus put on a body and lived and died to tear these walls down and to wipe this record clean. And when you forgive someone on this, you're, you're not doing it for your sake and you're not even doing it for their sake. You're doing it for the sake of Jesus Christ. Do you know the person you belong to, the one who owns you, is the one who died for that other person. I am begging you because the temptation is to keep this in the dark. That if someone follows the Holy Spirit in courage and confesses, I am pleading with you to forgive them. Now, what I'm going to tell you on both of those fronts is uh, confession is hard. So you might not know someone that you trust and you might need help. Come find, I'm serious, come find the elders. Come find me, come find Keith. We'll start there. If you need to forgive someone, it is going to be super duper, super hard. And you might need help doing that. I'm begging you this morning, go get that help. Come find one of the elders. Come find myself. Come find Keith. We will help you with that. And here's the third thing that fleeing means. If you're not either one of those parties, if you're not someone who's sinned or been sinned against, if you're not an offender or the offended, but you come across confession or you, you stumble onto a brother or a sister who is stuck in this problem, I want you to remember this. You are in war right now. That's not like a metaphor I'm manipulating y'all with. The devil hates Jesus. He really does. And if you want a picture of that, just read then to John. That's how Jesus got crucified. Now it was by grace, but he hates Jesus, which means he hates y'all. He just does. The temptation, if somebody uh, tells this to you, is to do one of two things. It's to either ignore it, like pat him on the back and say, hey, I love you. I'm praying for you. Y'all ever been there? The other temptation is to reject them. I cannot believe you did that, or even just in your silence, you know, or just stop associating with the person. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, you know, we know verse 2 uh, because it says, um, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Y'all know that one? We use it all the time about like cooking each other meals and help, and it's about that. It's about helping each other move. You know, verse one says, if any brother is caught in transgression, those of you who are spiritual among you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What I'm begging you to do this morning is if somebody comes to you with this, get in the fight with them. Restore them. What that means is if they need to go confess to someone, you help them, you go with them. 
If somebody is wrestling with forgiveness, that means you get in the fight and you help them. You help them forgive. Listen, this is a communal imperative. It's a y'all. There's not just like one enemy. There is a whole entire kingdom that wants to see the body of Christ defiled in this way. And don't worry, Christ is your king and the Holy Spirit who's greater than the one that's in the world is living among you. But y'all need each other. You do. I'm begging you this morning to do one of these three things. Confess, forgive, or restore. But all, every single person in this room needs to get in this fight. Finally, if we do that, if we turn towards one another, turn towards what our master has done, do you know it is actually possible that you will glorify Christ in your body? That the nations will look at the church, will look at the community of Christ and see such a distinguished and costly ethic that they will go, what in the world could be going on in that community? And you know what they'll find at the center of it? A God who stepped down into history, a king who bled for his people and won for them resurrection. Christ will be glorified if y'all get in this fight. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you as our king. We take great rest in you as the one who bought us for yourself. We take great rest in your record, which is given to us even as we read in Confession and Assurance this morning that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in you. And we also believe by faith that Holy Spirit, you are so much greater than he who's in the world. And we're grateful that you have committed yourself to wedding us to Jesus, that you take all of his merits, all of his benefits, and you apply them to us, that you bring us to conviction, you instruct us in Christ, you do what we can't do. You take dead hearts and you breathe and you create faith in those hearts. And so we pray that you would make us a church that finds its rest and its comfort in your work among us and in Christ's work in the past. And we pray that you would make us a people that see the fight that we're in, that you would make us a people that turn towards one another, that put our arms around one another and that lead each other and go together back to you, Jesus. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.